moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. It makes Lawrence laugh every time. And with me, I have my illustrious co-host, the big voice boring guy. Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and research coach. Nice and sweet. Hello, LB. Hey, how are you, pal? I'm fantastic. It's like NBA action. So today we are in for a monster episode. So the topic of today's conversation is going to be building scalable asynchronous learning and development programs. And if you think that title sounds weighty, wait till you get into the subject matter. In this episode, we're going to learn how learning and development and learning in general has changed. We're going to also uncover what impact those changes have had on learning and development design. And lastly, we're going to learn how L&D needs to respond to those changes in order to be more effective. So those are big signposts that we are going to answer. And joining us today to help answer those questions is our featured guest, Dr. Jesse Wade Ivory. Hello, Doc. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It is going to be an action-packed conversation. I'm super excited, but I'm always super excited about our featured guests. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got there. Give us a whole rundown. All right. I can actually take it all the way back to childhood. Uh, I got in some trouble as a child. And the trouble that I got in is that they would call and tell my mom that when she would get done with her tests, they would be talking about me. Hey, Jesse gets done with her tests. She starts helping all of the other students and giving them answers. Now, I was well-intentioned with that. I always found myself wanting to bring everybody along with me. If I was winning, I wanted everybody to win. What I didn't know is that was the beginning of who I was and how I was wired. And I stumbled upon, I went to college. My undergraduate degree was in business computer systems. Interesting enough, but eventually some kind of way I stumbled into educational administration and I found kind of the place that I was supposed to be moving into higher education and it allowed me to really help people. And so I am a true person-centered type of individual that just wants to see people realize their full capacity. And a lot of that is due to my own challenges trying to make it in life. I'm first generation college student, the first in my family, in my immediate family to get my bachelor's, probably the third in my extended family to get a master's and the first, at least on my mother's side, to get her doctorate in all of my extended family. This is all my grandmother's children and everything. And what's been exciting about that journey is I couldn't see this for myself. I was always curious about my capacity, but I couldn't see it for myself. I'm always saying, if I can get to this point that I'm at now, what can other people do? And how do we provide an easier path than say I had to for people to get there? And so I'm in the business of people. That is the best way for me to put it. And so I work in higher ed right now. I also do some consulting on the side, helping faith and purpose-driven brands that also serve people to provide experiences that help with their transformation. And that is the work that I'm doing and I'm continuing to do. And honestly, 
I'm open to what the future looks like and being able to do more of that. So really excited about being able to talk now about scalable experiences, but talking in the context of how do we make impactful, scalable experiences so that people leave the experience having what they need. That's probably the Cliff Notius version of Cliff Notes I've ever heard about somebody's bio. And I'm not going to move on to the rest of the story until we dig a little <laughs> bit deeper into some Let's of the see. details. One of the things that stood out about what you just described is you talked about where you are and how you got there and all that sort of stuff. But you mentioned that you never really were at a point where you actually could see for yourself that this was a possibility. So I'm curious, when you think about your story, what were the influences or who were the influencers who actually got you to be able to envision yourself a certain way or gave you a view into what's possible? Because that's been a common thread across Mm -hmm. all of our guests, that it was either something they saw, someone they knew, somebody Mm -hmm. opened their eyes on what's possible. So give us a little bit of detail into who gave you that view of possibility. It's probably a lot of different experiences and people, but the first person was Miss LaFrancine Baker. She was actually an eighth grade teacher and she was really big on exposing, particularly the Black students in, I'm from Freeport, Illinois, so I'll shout them out, small town, exposing us. Home of the pretzels, yes, proudly. Yes, can't you can eat us, but you can't beat us. That was our saying. But anyway, but she was really big on exposing us to college life, even beyond the local community college. And so I remember her taking us to, I might have been 12. She took us to Northern Illinois University. And it was for some conference that was going on. I don't, she didn't really tell us why we were going. She just told our parents hey, Jesse's going with me Saturday, let's go. And so we're there, we see Cornell West. I couldn't appreciate at the time that I was seeing Cornell West, but we saw Cornell West and Michael Eric Dyson and some others. And that was all exciting because we were in the room with a lot of other schools and groups and that was really exciting. But I'm going to tell you, and this is a really funny story. I remember we must've been in the student center, I'm assuming. I was too young then to know the concept, but We must have been in the student center and I went over and there was a McDonald's. And I remember saying to myself, wait, you have a McDonald's on campus? It was earth shattering for whatever reason in that moment. And I think what it really did is that it said that there was, it exposed to me that there was a college experience. In my mind, college was a room where people sat in there and studied all day and night, every day. That's the only concept I had of college at the time. And then I get there and there's a McDonald's on campus. Oh, so I can go places and eat while I'm here? Okay, that's interesting. And then we went over a little further and there was a bowling alley. And I stood there with my mouth open saying, wait, there's a bowling alley here? So wait, you get to play here as a student? I remember asking a student that and they looked at me like, is she okay? Because I was so excited about again, being exposed to this college experience. And for me, that was the beginning of, I have got to get back to this place. Maybe not that particular college, but I needed to get to college in general because clearly there's more going on there than what I knew. And so that was the beginning of me saying, I should go to college. I really should go to college because there's this whole college experience that I didn't know anything about. And funny story, When I talk to youth and they tell me to come in and talk about college and to promote college, I do not talk about the academics at all. 
I come in and I show videos of the college experience. I show the step shows. I, I show videos of the dorms. All these things that I had no concept for when I got exposed to college. And that kind of set me on a path. And as I got to college, then I got more and more exposed. All of these different experiences. I was a student speaker for Barack Obama right before he became president, not too long before he became president. Blew my mind of the possibilities of what I can do. When I got my master's, there was a lot of things that I was involved in that exposed me. So I think every step exposed me to the next step. And then something would happen within that environment to say there's even more outside of this keep going and seeing what's happening. But it really started with those college visits. The program is called Choices that Ms. Baker would take us on whether we wanted to go to the visits or not. And it exposed me to college. And that was the beginning. The entire time that you're talking through that experience, seeing it through your eyes and relating it back to some of my very first experiences, I'm sure LB was doing the same thing too. Like my first experience on an airplane, had no idea what that was. And when I saw little cars, as I'm as we're coming in as a kid, I'm thinking, oh, wow, the UK and the US are great. They have all these toys all over the place. First time I saw snow, had no idea what snow was, thought it was sugar. Uh So I took a handful and stuffed it in my mouth. But Uh your experience is much better than having salty, cold stuff in your mouth, but took me right there. But from your perspective, and it was stuff that I didn't even put together when I was going through it. You've built this track record or this history of wanting to make an impact and you've made impact. And that's been a paying it forward from the experiences that you had from Mrs. Baker. The topic of the show is building scalable, asynchronous learning and development programs. So before we get into the, how do you do that? Or what does it mean? I think we need to set out some context and talk about what's happening in the world in terms of how people learn. So tell us a little bit about how learning in general and how people learn is different than what it was when you and I were going through our various programs and LB was going through his various programs. Like what's changed that we need to take into consider before we get into tackling the problem? Absolutely. I was having this conversation with someone else where we were talking about information and access to information. Historically, if you wanted to get access to information, you needed to go to your local library, physically go there and or you had to go to a college or university or some sort of academic institution to unlock the door to information that would allow you to be successful. And so in that regard, libraries, schools served as the broker to success, if you will. They, you had to go through the library, through the institution to get to success. But the internet was born at some point. Now, when it was initially born, that alone did not change everything. But slowly over time, something began to happen. So if we think about Google and the Google search engine, and at the point that we were able to start searching for information on the internet, that started something. Now, not all information is good because anybody can decide to put something out there that is not good. But what changed everything, I believe, and what has caused us to to rethink how people learn and how they get their information is the monetization of information. And so now, whether you're on YouTube, Instagram has a monetization program, Facebook will now pay you for views and likes and subscribers 
And the way that people get subscribers is they provide free information. Now, again, some of it is not good, but some of it is excellent. And so what has happened now is that there is no longer one broker to information. There's now multiple brokers, multiple players, and now the power has shifted from those institutions or organizations like libraries that once held all the information, the power has shifted to the learner, where the learner says, I have a choice on where I want to be able to get my information. And that information is happening on demand, real time. I can wake up at two in the morning and get that information. I can have it available on my phone. I can have it in various formats. I can do audio. I can look at a video, audio, like a podcast. I can download some sort of ebook. However I need it, I can get it and I can get it any kind of way that I want it. And I can get it on the go, sitting in front of my computer, whatever it is. That has really changed how we learn and our appetite for how we want to learn. And so now it's almost subconscious when we look for information in order to develop our skills or whatever it is, we are looking for it in a certain way. We're looking for fast, accessible, on-demand. It needs to be on my phone. It needs to be on my computer, wherever I want it. I need to be able to access it all the time. No, I shouldn't be able to have kind of one point of access to it, and then I don't have access to it. Nope, this is lifetime. This is mine. I get to keep this information forever and keep referring back to it. That is entirely different than the model of traditional education is what I'll say. I'm about to flip out because I'm a big nerd and you're talking about nerdy things and LB is uh, is going <laughs> to chime in too. So buckle in. So what you're talking about has so many implications across so many functions. You're generally talking about the democratization of access to information. There's a lot of implications in just that exercise because The legacy model, whether you're talking about finance, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about Mm -hmm. whatever, there was always the keeper of the keys and the keeper of the keys defined the rules of engagement, which often led to a bunch of people that look like us. So for those listening on the podcast, you have three people, brown people in the room. Don't call the police. We're just talking about nerdy things. So you have brown people that were often left behind by the people that held the keys of access to any number of things. So when you're talking about access to information and the democratization of that access, that is a phenomenal shift. And it has implications everywhere. I've been in sales forever. And one of the things that I'm talking to my learning and development group in terms of how we deliver training from a functional execution perspective goes right at what you said, on-demand, perpetual, multiple medias or mediums that it can be delivered. I don't know if that's the right word, but you get what I'm saying. These are fundamental principles that can go across any learning and development organization on any topic. So that was a phenomenal breakdown on your part in terms of how are people learning and what are the implications in terms of how things need to be designed to meet people where they are. Talk us through all of the limiting factors in the old model and why the new model in terms of how information is accessed is a net huge benefit for people that look like us. I want to step back because I want to make sure I mentioned there's one more related factor. Let's talk about COVID. 
and the impact of COVID. So what was happening when COVID appeared in March? It appeared before that. But when we all began to feel it, it was like March of 2020. If we thought we were busy before, it brought on another level of busy. You have people at home. They are trying to work from home. They are also trying to be a surrogate teacher to their children. We are sick. We are taking care of family. People are losing jobs. And so I'm also having to take on another job to to deal with the finances. And so in that, these are the people we're looking to serve and we're very busy and we want them to go to school. But they have even less time now than they did before. So not only did the monetization of information have an impact on the changing landscape of information, but also the fact that COVID made us not have any time. And so if people don't have time, it leads us back to the same place, flexible on demand. But that is also a factor. And it's a factor that's here to stay. People are juggling multiple personal and professional things at the same time. So now what does this mean? They don't have time to stop and actually consume information the way that we are used to providing it. And so how do we still provide this information? And how do we provide it in such a way that they still get what they need from it, given that they are partially distracted? I'm not going to say that we've totally figured that out, but that's massive. And we must consider it as we're creating these experiences, because it doesn't matter if I create the experience and they get through it, but they're not changed. We have to still do it, consider that they're distracted, hope that they still get out of the experience though what they need and can be successful. It's a it's an entirely different, it, there is no paradigm. It's not a paradigm shift. There is no paradigm now. We have to blow the box up and go, okay, what does this now mean? So I just want to make sure that I mentioned that. It's not just the monetization of information, but it's also that we are hyper-distracted. And so now what do we do as educators or those who offer learning and development opportunities? That adds another layer of constraint to where we were going. When you look at the old model, you still had to figure out how to get there. You had to figure out all the paperwork. You had to figure out all of these different things that underserved communities or underrepresented groups oftentimes didn't have access to or weren't even aware of. You add in the pandemic lifestyle and post-pandemic lifestyle, you're talking about an extremely limited and stretched individual where traditional models are telling them, no, you still have to do it this way. You bring up the point about the shortcomings of the current design. So I think it segues nicely into a couple of things. One, if you could share a little bit more about the whole idea around the curriculum considerations and you already touched on this a little bit, but you can say a little bit more about the design considerations, because I get the sense that when you're looking at organizations, I think even we can expand this out beyond academia, right? Mm-hmm. That the corporate sector is, is struggling with this as well. How do you come up with effective curriculum and how do you come up with the design considerations for how you capture all these people that need these elements that have been impacted by COVID? Just to talk a little bit about curriculum and actually none of What I'm about to say about curriculum is not necessarily new, but we just need to get, we really need to make sure that we adopt it. So I find, and I'll say more non-higher ed, this happens. We look at when we're about to design something, we go, okay, what all do we know? Let's brain dump that. And then let's put it in order and let's train people. That I'm being very general there and and oversimplifying the process, but that's the approach. What all do I know? And let me provide that. And then let's teach people. And it's like the question I would ask you, but are they getting what they need to get? 
Can you say that definitively and how do you know? And so we don't do enough of designing beginning with the end in mind and not just the end of the program, but beginning with the ending transformation. So as a result of my program, what are what do I want to see the person doing after they went through my program? And whatever that action is, then back it up and go, okay, what are the steps they need to take to get to that end? And then once I break down those, get to those steps, then break down those steps into steps. And I like to use, instead of taking it from a topical approach, I like to think of actions. So I'll give you a very simple example. If the goal at the end of, of, say I'm offering a cooking class, and by the end, the goal is that you will know how to bake. Now I could talk about all that I know concerning baking, spices, temperatures, different things of that nature. And I could teach you about all of that. But then the best that I can guarantee is that you will leave knowing how to repeat what I said. What I can do though, if I say you need to know how to bake, then I'm gonna say, what are the four steps that somebody needs to take to bake? And literally think of that from an action standpoint and walk you through those steps and those micro steps and then design topics around the steps they need to take, but also describe even to the person the steps that they need to take. So a lot of times I feel like that's not how we approach the curriculum of a program. We tend to go, what is it all that I know? And we either give too much or too little or not the right things to get to the point of transformation. So start with what is the transformation and walk backwards. And the reason why that's important, and that's not, again, earth shattering, but the reason why that's important is people no longer have an appetite for things that are not gonna get them to where they need to get to. And they say, listen, if this is not gonna get me to the point of success, I don't want it. Tune in next time for more of our learning and development masterclass with Dr. Jesse Wade Ivory. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player, Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.